Today's uh, reading is from Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. I don't know the page, but it's got to be like one, two, or three, two. All right. You want to read along with me. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the, gr on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading that text, JP. We're going to come back to that text. We're going to mention that text later on. I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Colossians, uh, Colossians and the third chapter. That's page 984 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided for you there in the seats. We've had a full day so far, some really good testimonies, great singing, um, and so we're going to spend just a few minutes here looking at this text of Scripture. As we continue in our Recovering Relationships uh, series, we only have one sermon left in this and uh, next week, and then we'll launch in. So in two weeks, we'll begin uh, our survey of the book of uh, Lamentations. And so you can begin reading ahead on that, if you will. Uh, let me set the scene a little bit here in the book of Colossians. Uh, we're kind of parachuting into chapter 3. And so, you know, this was actually, uh, some of you may remember, uh, 10 years ago, this was the first book that I preached through here uh, when I came here 10 years ago. We, we did a series in the book of Colossians. And, and the theme of the book really is the preeminence of Christ. And that's what we wanted to establish is that this is what this church needs to be about and, and has historically been about. We need to continue that, that, the, that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. And we see that throughout the book here. And what he's doing in the text where I'm going to draw our attention to in chapter 3 is that he's, he's given some household code, if you will, of how do we have the preeminence of Christ in all areas, including the household. And so in verse 18 of chapter 3 of Colossians, it says, wives, submit your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, verse 22 and following is going to be, uh, will serve as our, our main text for the sermon. Verse 22 says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the background of the book is that there's a preeminence of Christ in all areas of life. And in this particular section, he's saying, how does it affect the Christian home? How does having the gospel of Jesus Christ radically transforming someone, how does that impact a husband-wife relationship, a parent-child relationship, and then here, even in the slave-master relationship? Now, before I can continue on, that brings up a whole other question, right? That brings up, well, wait a minute here. Does the Bible promote slavery then by this? Now, the reason why I'm going to take just a second, and the introduction is going to be a little bit longer than normal here because I want to set the scene here, but I also want to take just a moment and maybe give a little tutorial on this is how we need to properly interpret the Scriptures, okay? It's easy to read a verse and then make a, a wrong conclusion based off of just one 
one verse. And so when we see here, slaves obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, what is going on here? When we see the word slave in the New Testament, immediately our minds go back to and think of potentially think of that great stain on our great country's legacy of slavery. Maybe that's what we go back to and we think of when we see in verse uh, uh, 22 of chapter 3 here, we think of slaves. Just immediately in our minds, we have these images of this slavery that would have happened in the 19th century and even before in our country here. But what we need to do is we need to go back to the New Testament. And we need to look at it and say, okay, where was this written? Because this was not written in the 19th century in America. This was not written in the 18th century in England. This was written to a completely different context and a completely different time. And the world in which this was written in was the Roman Empire world. As it turns out, if we go back and compare these two, there really, were some, there really are some significant differences between what is meant by slavery here and what we potentially think of as slavery, what had happened in our great country's history here. Slavery was, de- was not determined by race in the Roman Empire as it was in our country, unfortunately. Rather, the distinction was political and economic. In fact, slaves, they made up of almost half the population of the Roman Empire. There was estimates, historians say, 60 million slaves were part of the population. And it really was anyone who was a part of any type of service or who provided a service were considered a slave. So that means teachers and tutors and doctors were considered slaves. In fact, in the Roman Empire, often people would sell themselves into slavery because there was a, a more secure financial position for them in that capacity. Furthermore, people could buy their freedom, as was mentioned in Acts chapter 22. There's a little snippet in Acts chapter 22 where Paul's talking with someone. He's on trial, and there's a tribune there. And he asked Paul if he's a Roman citizen. And Paul says, yes, I'm a Roman citizen. And the tribune in Acts chapter 22 says, I myself have bought my citizenship. But Paul says, mine was by birth. And so even in just that little verse there, we see the support of historians of saying, yes, if people could buy their freedom in the Roman Empire. Now, to be sure, there were abuses of slavery in the Roman Empire. Just when you have sinful man involved in anything, there's going to be abuses. And so I don't want to paint a picture that it was always perfect and that there was never any problems with it. But what I am trying to say is I'm trying to say is not exactly what we think of when we think of what happened in the 1800s here and before. It was a completely different type of scenario. It was not based on race. It was not based on on what the person looked like. It was based on economic situations and maybe even political situation. And so what Paul is doing here in this is that he is, he's not trying to end slavery because he understands that if he was to encourage people to revolt, that that would actually be counterproductive. And so if he was going to tell the slaves, hey, revolt, revolt against this, it was going to be uh, against what was actually going to happen, so, or what should have happened. So instead, he teaches slaves and masters of how the gospel should affect their working relationship. So what he says, he says, okay, slaves, you're in this situation. Here's how the gospel should affect you. Masters, you're in this situation. Here's how the gospel should affect you. 
And by that he knows, Paul knows that if that happens then, then this would radically change the slavery situation and how people are interacting. One would think of Paul's letter to Philemon, of how that he encouraged Philemon to receive Onesimus, the slave, back, and not to treat him as a slave, but to treat him as a brother, right? And so you see how the gospel is supposed to be at work here. Now, how do we apply this to today? Why are we going through today? Well, here's what we do. We acknowledge what the original intention of the text was, that this was a slavery situation in the Roman Empire, so it was different than how we understand it in the American history. But yet at the same time, that there was this relationship where the slaves didn't have rights because they were voluntarily giving them up or sometimes they were taken away, but they could earn them through financial gain. But how do we, so we take that understanding, then we, we take the principles of that that were intended for slaves and masters, and then we cross a bridge of the cultural gap, and then we arrive at the modern day work situation here. And so the interpretation, and this is very important, the interpretation is slaves and masters, but the application is our working relationship today. This is how we read our Bibles, and this is how we get into trouble, is if we launch right straight to application without taking the time to go through interpretation. So someone could read this text and say, okay, slaves uh, um, obey in everything that the earthly masters. I'm going to own slaves now. You see, they've gone straight to application without doing the interpretive process. We all would agree here, that's a wrong application. We can't do that. That's wrong. Okay, because we skipped over the interpretive process. So when we interpret the scriptures properly, we do a little bit of background, what was happening, what was the original intention here, we understand what was happening, then we can make the principles and we say, okay, now we're over here into the application process. And that's what we want to do today with this text. We've looked at what what it was in the original, and then now we're going to make some, some applications because we're talking about this idea of recovering relationships. And one of the things that we really need to work on is having a healthy understanding of work, having a biblical theology, if you will, of work. What does it mean to be a Christian and an employee? What does it mean to be a Christian and an employer? This text will help us as we make the application from this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to suggest uh, four ways in which following Jesus changes our relationship with work. We're going to suggest that it changes our work ethic, our boss, our paycheck, and even our management style. So let's go through that together. But before I do that, let me just pause, ask God's blessing. I told you the introduction was a little bit longer. We've had a full day so far. It's been so good to hear the testimonies of salvation, hasn't it? It's so good to hear what God says. It's been so good to sing praises of what God has done and is doing. And then now we get to dive into this text. But let's ask God's blessing. Father, Lord, I pray. I pray in just a few minutes that we have here. I pray that we would, um, that we would, we would benefit from this text of Scripture. Lord, um, we, know that, uh, we know that this is uh, inspired by your uh, by your spirit, that this word is, this, this Bible. And so now as I have the privilege to stand in front of these people and speak about it and teach from it, God, uh, my words are not inspired, and so I pray that I'd be led by your spirit and that I would teach in a way that is faithful to this text, but it is helpful to all of us who have gathered here. 
And we're so thankful for the testimonies of grace that have been shared here and the opportunities to sing and read the scriptures and then in a few minutes at the table that we'll have some time of fellowship. So thank you for this wonderful day that you've given to us. In Christ's name we do pray, amen. First of all, following Jesus energizes our work ethic. This is how the gospel should affect our working relationship. This is how being a follower of Jesus Christ should impact what we do on a day-to-day basis. Really, being a disciple of Jesus Christ should bring an energy to our work ethic. And we see this in verse 22 where it says, Obey in everything, those are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so really, if we think about it, if we understand, Understand that what God has given us, He's given us the opportunity to work. He's given us a privilege to do this. And then this is one of the reasons why I had JP read Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to mention this in the next point, is that that, that the work is not something as a result of the fall. God's designed us to work. He has given us that capacity and that design that we should be people who are working. But what the gospel does, and when we follow Jesus Christ and we put him in preeminence, the theme of the book of Colossians, what that does is that that says that our energy, our, our work ethic is going to be energized. We're going to be people who are going to work hard. And, not, and so really what it is is it transforms a monotonous job into an opportunity of worship. And some of you may not, you may have a job right now that you just can't stand. You may have a job right now that you just do not look forward to going to. But when you're a follower of Jesus Christ... What is energizing of the job is that you're a disciple of his, you're a disciple of Christ, and you have the opportunity to serve him in that capacity. He says, not as eye-pleasers, not as as, in eye-servers or as men-pleasers. He says, but in sincerity of heart, we should have this energy in working for the Lord. In everything, it says, in everything, we can't just pick and choose which job to work hard at. And which job to be lazy about. And so when we fear the Lord, because that's how it ends, it says, as for uh, fearing the Lord, when we fear the Lord, our work ethic changes. So no longer do we have to have a supervisor constantly looking over our shoulder to make sure that we're working hard. No longer do we have to depend upon pay raises to motivate us. Although those are good and those are helpful and I wouldn't turn them down. Right? And if you're in my nearest place, I wouldn't turn down a pay raise. But that's not the point. The point is, is that the, 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 the work ethic that we have should be informed by, by, by mostly informed by the fact that we're followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, work hard. Persevere. This means that as, as things get difficult, we persevere and we work hard. Now, that perseverance is something that is getting more and more rare in our society. When things get difficult, people want to give up. When things get hard, they want to quit. And when we look at this text here, we say, okay, this should inform. This is a biblical theology of work here. And we say, we work heartily. It says that we are to obey in everything. We are to work in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This means we persevere. This means we work hard. It means when the day gets rough, when the jobs get difficult in our our place of employment or our place of primary responsibility, maybe there's somebody here where you have plenty of responsibilities in your life, you're just not getting the paycheck for them. 
Well, it means that you work hard even in those responsibilities that we just do not enjoy. But we, it's getting more and more common where people, once something gets difficult, they want to quit. Or they don't want to persevere. Or they don't want to push through. I, you know, I, I'm reminded of, of the story. I can't remember the lady. Uh, this, this illustration just came to me. I, was, I read it years ago as a swimmer who was swimming across uh, uh, from uh, Catalina Island to the shores of California. And uh, uh, it was a long-distance thing, and she wanted to swim in, in a certain amount of time. And so she was swimming this, and, but the day that she was going to do this, there was an intense fog that came in. And so she was swimming along, and, and she was so tired, and she felt like she was not making any ground because of, uh, or, or any progress because of the, 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 the weather was so bad. And, and people were in the boat, the spotter boat next to her, and they were saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. And she's swimming, and she's swimming. And she's like, I can't, I can't. And so she grabs to the boat, and she climbs in. And then they realized that they were like 100 yards from shore. Okay, it was like it was almost there. If she would just persevere, now again, you put me in the water, uh, I'm sure she did much better than I would have done, okay? So I'm, I'm casting my stones very lightly here. But the point is, is that we often give up right before when the successes or, or when God has the lesson for us to learn there. So we're trying to make application from this text of how this should impact daily life, recovering the relationship that we have with work. Work hard. Work hard, even in jobs that we don't really like. We've all had those jobs. Work hard. It energizes our work ethic. I need to move on. Following Jesus, not only does it energize our work ethic, but it changes our boss. And we see this in verse 23, where it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay. You see, we need to recover this relationship that we have with work because a lot of times we make it about the earthly boss or supervisor that we have. What we do is we, we consider how we're going to work or we're going to consider our, our uh, success at work by, and we let our boss determine that or our supervisor determine that. And what Paul is tell, telling these people here, he's saying, you have a greater supervisor than your earthly master. You have a, a higher standard than that. And he says, he says you have a, a, a boss that is, is in the heavens and is perfect and is righteous. And so the following Jesus changes our boss. Have you ever asked the question, like, why do I work? Like, like take a step back and look at it and say, okay, why, why do I work? Now you say, well, okay, that's pretty obvious. Okay, well, some people say, well, I work hard so I can take a vacation, so I can enjoy that time of vacation. Great. Why do you need a vacation? Because I work so hard, okay? <laughs> do you see it? Do you see how this is cyclical? Now, this isn't, that's an, admittedly, that's an overly reductionistic view of work. There's so much, there's so many more uh, nuances to it. But the point is true is that sometimes we need to take a step back and say, why is it that we're doing this anyway? Why are we doing this? I mean, we, we do this type of vacation, the vacation so that we work hard, and it kind of keeps going back. Sometimes we just need to take a step back here and say, why is it that we work? This is why JP read Genesis chapter 2 earlier. We work because it's God's design for us to work. That's why we work. So when we go to work, our place of employment, 
or we show up to fulfill our, uh, our main responsibility in life right now, whether that's schooling children or whatever the case may be, when we're doing that, we understand that our boss is not uh, our earthly master, really. Our boss is God, is Jesus. It, the scriptures are very clear here. It says we do it for the Lord and not for men. And so this is, this, the, the, in verse 23 here, when you see whatever you do, work heartily. That word work there is, in, is an imperative. It is a command. We are to work hard. Why? Because we have a different boss. This is why when everyone else at your work may be slacking off because you have a terrible supervisor or a terrible boss and doesn't know how to manage anything, you say, I'm going to work hard anyway even if that makes you unpopular, because you have a boss that's higher than your immediate supervisor. We've all been in situations, or, or, or many of us have been in situations before where we have a supervisor that isn't the best and isn't doing well at their job. And it is easy for you to just kind of do whatever you want. It's easy to, to slack off. It's easy to be lazy. This is how the gospel transforms those situations. This is how you recover the proper relationship with work that you need to have. And that is, you have a greater boss. And that person is Jesus Christ. He says here, you serve Christ, okay? Um, look at the end of verse 24. It says, you are serving Lord Christ. Now, that word, uh, that can be either a st- as a statement of fact or a command. Uh, grammatically, it can go either way. And, and really, it works both ways. And it says, he, he, you know, Paul could be telling them, listen, as I command you, you are serving Christ. Remember that. Or he could be just making a statement of fact and saying, listen, the whole reason why you're doing this is because you're serving Christ. Okay? So can't you see how understanding this can help with the Monday morning blues? Okay? Like, I just do not feel like going to work. And I'm not saying that every time, you know, that alarm clock goes off, unless you jump out of bed and just like you can't wait for the day to go to work, that you're sinning. That's not what I'm suggesting, okay? But what I am suggesting, what I am saying, is that we have a different supervisor as Christians. So whatever, whether you have a great supervisor or, or a terrible one, uh, and your and your earthly job, this is what being a follower of Jesus changes. The change is that you have Christ as your supervisor. Serve Him, serve Him in your job. Do you realize that you may be one of the very few Christians in your area there to to bring the fragrance of Christ to your department or to your job? Bring the fragrance of Christ. Think about that. Let that motivate you. This is what is going to recover our relationship with work rather than it's like, "Ah, I don't really want to do this. I wish that we didn't do this. This is part of our design. In fact, even in eternity, we're going to have jobs and responsibilities. So that's not part of the curse. And great joy can come from doing a job well. And we're going to experience that for all eternity. But great joy comes from the Christ follower who says, no matter what, I'm going to serve Christ in this. So following Jesus changes our boss. That supervisor that you have at work is not your highest priority, or highest authority, I should say. Uh, Thirdly, I need to move. Following Jesus enhances our paycheck. 
Okay, so again, we're saying, how does, how does being a Christian, how does the gospel affect our relationship with work here? Well, it enhances our paycheck here. Uh, we see this in verse 24. Uh, do you remember your first paycheck? Do you remember that? The first time you got paid for a job? I go back to um, some of my earliest jobs that I had. I was, I was a paper boy. Uh, before I had my fast food stint, I can tell you everything about Wendy's and Hardee's if you want to know. But uh, uh, before that, I was a paper boy. And those were the days where I got on a bike and I rode around the neighborhood and I didn't throw the paper. I went up and put it between the doors, you know. And those were also the days where I had to knock on the door every week or every two weeks or every month and collect for the, the paper, right? So I had to knock on, on the door, and they'd answer the door and hand me their paper, and I'd say, I'm collecting for Macomb Daily. That was the paper that I, I delivered, the Macomb Daily. And uh, they would say, okay, come back tomorrow. You know, that, I always loved that. Right? Come back tomorrow. So you come back the next day, and they'd be like, okay, I, you know, and, this and so a week would go into two weeks or whatever. But I remember having to, to do this, and this is the day they would pay you in cash. And so here I was, you know, I don't know, 11 years old, whatever, and I'm like stuffing my, my pockets just full of cash, right? And, and mine was actually always very neat. My brother's was always messy. And so if you ever see him, you can tease him about that. Mine were organized and things like that. And so I put it in my pocket. But I had like this, this big old wad of cash here. I'd never seen so much money in my life. And so I'd drive home, ride home, and, and we'd empty all the money out into the kitchen counter. And I, I had just never seen, I mean, I thought I was rich beyond measure until my mom told me two things. Number one, those are mostly ones, okay, okay. And number two, you haven't paid for the papers yet, <laughs> okay. So now all of a sudden I got to pay for the papers, so all that goes out. And so you, you, I remember, but still feeling like in that first month, what am I going to do with all this money? I don't know what I mean. I mean, I had, I mean, I must have had like 50 bucks there. What was I going to do with all that money, right? That was my first paycheck, you know, we have that. We can go back, and some of you can tell stories of, of working for, you know, like I remember my first hourly job was like 4 bucks an hour or something like that, three seventy-five actually. Some of you could go a little bit cheaper than that probably, you know, right? Who remembers less than a dollar an hour? Who remembers less than a dollar? <laughs> All right. What, what, what do you remember? 50 cents an hour. All right. Anyone beat 50 cents an hour? 50 cents an hour. Okay, what, 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 was, what was it? What was it? Babysitting. Okay, okay, so that was on the goodwill of the parents. <laughs> all right, okay. Yeah, so we all remember that, you know, you know, getting that first paycheck, and then what do we do with that? We learn about taxes for the first time. Look at what the Scripture says about our inheritance here. Verse 24, it says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance, as your reward. Now, why does it say knowing there? That's continuing the thought, okay? This is this Bible interpretation here. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your, as your reward. Well, in order to understand what that's talking about, we've got to go back to 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. Remember I told you that was a command. That's the main verb. That's the command. That controls the thought, and knowing there is, is, is hinged on that. And so we're to work heartily how knowing that our reward is actually in heaven. Okay, so what does this mean? This means that in the vocabulary of a Christian employee, 
we really shouldn't have, I don't get paid enough for that. I mean, how many of us have said that? I mean, we've all thought it, right? You see, this is what the scriptures does. This is what following Jesus says. It changes us. We all want a good paycheck, and there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. However, if we find ourselves unhappy with our level of pay, what typically happens? We slack off. We say, yeah, I don't get paid for that. I'm not going to do that. You see, don't you see how the gospel changes our relationship with work? Don't you see how the, the, it's not about that. Now, again, I, I, am I saying that you shouldn't advocate for more pay? or something? No, I'm not saying that at all. Go ahead and go through the channels and, and getting a good paycheck and paying what is, is deserved, of course. That is, that is not what I'm preaching against here. But if you're in a situation where you're not happy with your pay and, there's, and that's not going to change, here's the only point. That doesn't give you a license to slack off and not work hard. You say, boy, this is a, a sermon about working hard. Why is it so important? Because it's reflecting of what Christ has done for us. And, it, and we're fulfilling the mission that God has given to us by, by working hard and working diligently and all for the glory of God. And God, he gives us paychecks along the way, and sometimes some are greater than others. Sometimes you have jobs that pay better than others. But following Jesus means that we're going to receive an inheritance. Now, keep in mind, going back to the original audience of this, slaves in this time, at this point, while they were a slave, they couldn't own personal property. They could buy it eventually after the freedom, but at this time, they couldn't own personal property. So you can imagine what this would have said. So as a, as a slave in, in Roman history would have heard this and said, you're going to receive an inheritance. So maybe you're not able to have the things in this life that you wish you were able to have. Just remember, he says, you'll receive an inheritance. Again, this is not prosperity theology. This is not prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that God's going to give you everything you want. I'm just saying that we have a greater reward that we're looking forward to. We have a greater reward that is in heaven, right? So we work for for Christ. Um, So we work hard for the paycheck, but knowing that we do have a reward that awaits us that won't get taxed and inflation can't touch. So, which is wonderful. Work for that reward. Lastly, so following Jesus, it, it changes so many things about our relationship with work, but it also cha- changes our management style. So we need to move now from employee because it, he also, this is the beauty of the Bible, right? This is the, the beauty of the Bible is that it really does hit us right where we need to be challenged at in, in, in no matter where we're at. And so if you're uh, an employee, there's a lot here for you to think about. If you're a manager here, you don't escape the application either here. Um, it says in verse four, or, or chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So if you find yourself in a managerial role, uh, no doubt you feel the pressure to maximize profits for your company. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, right? There, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. It could get ethically wrong on a case-by-case basis, but generally speaking, big picture, trying to maximize the profits of a company isn't necessarily wrong. However, someone who has been influenced by Jesus will always look beyond the profits of a company and minister to the people that God has put around them, okay? Look beyond the profits and consider the people. Justice and equity are our goals, according to chapter 4, verse 1, to treat people justly and treat people fairly. 
So if you find yourself in a managerial role, and a lot of you will, uh, even if it's not even in a, a job where you get paid for it, right? You know, sometimes we're called to serve, and your main responsibility in life right now is to manage something or, or people, including children. If we find ourselves in that situation, justice and equity are the goal. So are we treating people fairly? And again, it's not always possible to be 100% perfect in this. I understand that. But is that the goal? Are you always looking to promote those whom you manage or are you afraid of them overshadowing you at work? The people who are underneath you and, 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 and if they get credit for too many things, are they going to overshadow you? Are you afraid of that or are you always promoting people and trying to give them the encouragement and the recognition? Do you truly want what's best for them, even if that means losing them to a transfer? or to a different job. Boy, I've struggled with this as a pastor, and I don't feel like I own anyone here. These are, this isn't my people here. This is a church I get to serve. But, you know, there's times where God relocates people. I can, I can, just, I can think of several times in the last 25 years, 24 years of ministry where I just, there's a, a key person or, or a couple or something or family, and I, I, they were just going to be really instrumental into the church, and then God moved them away someplace. And he was like, <sighs> But you know, God, he moves people around, and our job is to equip people, and if God has another spot for them, then we're going to celebrate that. Now, we should be faithful, and I think people leave churches for far, you know, not the right reasons a lot of times, but, but there are times where God just simply moves people from one church to another and it is the best thing for all involved. But it's still hard to swallow. In fact, I want, I hope that we actually lose people in the future. And what do I mean by that? I hope that people are trained and equipped go out and serve in other churches and other contexts as pastors and missionaries. And, and I hope that we send people away from here. Wouldn't that be great if we just had people that are like, hey, they're going to go serve in this church as pastor or they're going to go serve over here because they're going to help start this church over there. They're going to be one of the core families that are going to start this church in this area here. I hope that we lose people that way. Again, that's bittersweet. And again, I don't want to see anyone leave here, but for the good of the health of the church at large, isn't that what's best? If we're equipping people and sending them out? Of course. So it's a tough thing when you're manager position to promote someone and see them grow and to, to lose them. That's tough, and the temptation is to keep them down because you want to keep them. You see, that's not being just. That's not being fair. And he says here, you treat them justly and fairly, right? Um, knowing that you have a master's, knowing that we are all subordinates. If you're in a managerial position, understanding that you have a master, you have a supervisor, you have someone that you're accountable to. I don't care if you're the CEO, you have someone you're accountable to, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what transforms and changes and recovers our relationship with work. So how do you manage people, including children? Do you do so with justice and equity in mind? Do you have the Father's example in mind as you lead your children? What about at work? Does following Jesus influence you and in how you relate to people at work? 
Everyone at your work needs Jesus, right? And wouldn't it be a shame if people who worked for you never saw Christ in you because your managerial style didn't reflect Christ? Wouldn't that be a shame? You see, this text here is really helpful to share how in these household codes of how relationships need to be recovered. We had marriage, we have parenting, we have all these mentoring, and here our relationship in a working environment. How should the gospel change it? Well, it changes everything. But it all comes down to the core issue of knowing that we are serving the Lord. We're serving the Lord. Now, I told you that we need to work hard, and one of the things I'm so grateful for is that we have an example in Jesus Christ who did not slack off. And we're going to celebrate here at the table this fact that Jesus, he continued the work that was set before him. He, he did the job that was set before him, and, and he didn't slack off on it in any way at all. And we can be so grateful for that, that he's the example to follow. And so we have bread, we have juice here at the table here that we're going to receive in just a minute here. And it's going to be a reminder to us, a very tangible reminder of what Christ has done for us. It reminds us that we have a, a higher authority in God, right? That our lives that we have, that our lives that we are to live is always under the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of the Father here. And then I told you that remember that uh, following Jesus, the gospel, it should change uh, our, our, our paycheck, if you will. This is the reminder that there's a future inheritance that we are longing for, that we're longing for when Jesus returns and Jesus sets all things right. We have the opportunity to have an eternal relationship in face-to-face with Christ in heaven around his table. And here at this table here is just one of those little reminders that Jesus gave to us and said, I want you to have that hope. I want you to taste bread. I want you to taste some wine or juice in our case. I want you to taste that so you're reminded that there is an inheritance coming. There's a great reward coming. So you can be energized to go to work tomorrow. When, when you're reminded and you taste and say, okay, it's not about the paycheck, although that's nice, and I need it to pay the mortgage and all this stuff, and God takes care of that, but it's ultimately about about, uh, about Christ, about serving him and fulfilling this God-given responsibility that he's given to us so we can reflect his nature in working hard.